We have been looking at the book of Colossians, and we've seen that it's all about Jesus. And certainly the the book of Colossians itself is all about Jesus, but beyond that, it has showed us that our life, our relationships, our work, our family, our entertainment, our decisions, our finances, our thoughts, our priorities, everything in our life is about Jesus. And Paul was writing to the Colossian people and he reminds them in chapter 1 of the person of Jesus. He is preeminent. He is over all. But not only is he over all, he is in all. He transcends the boxes of our life so that in our entertainment, in our choices, in our family, in our relationships, in our church, in our schools, in everything in our lives, it's all about Jesus. And because he is preeminent, because he holds this position of preeminence, he has given us ultimate realities that lead to confidence. We saw this in Colossians chapter 2. The Colossian church was struggling with these imposed realities. There were cultural influences and old Jewish uh, religious uh, um, uh, thoughts and philosophies and practices that were creeping into the church that were causing doubt and they were living in these imposed realities and not in the confidence of Jesus Christ and Paul writes to say look because Jesus is preeminent because he's overall and in all what he has done specifically through his work on the cross has given us ultimate realities. specifically this our debt has been paid and our enemy has been defeated These are objective, external realities that we must live in, that we can embrace as truth because of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So he showed the person of Jesus as preeminent, and he showed the promise of Jesus that our debt has been paid and our enemy has been defeated. And now because of this, we saw in chapter 3, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, we stand in a position where we are dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. The ruling nature of sin in our lives that we once lived in, we were bound to, has been removed through the work of Jesus Christ. And a new ruling nature has been put inside of us. That is one of Jesus Christ. So in Christ, because of his preeminence, because of what he did, we now are in a position of being dead to the world and alive to Jesus Christ. And that influences everything we do. We saw it changes our priorities. It changes our practices. We are to be fighting to remove sin from our life because we no longer live under it. We are to be striving to put on Jesus Christ because we're now alive to him. This affects our relationships. We are to be rightly related one to another, not in order to gain or maintain position with Christ. Rather, because of our position in Christ, we can now live alive to Jesus. And as we come to chapter 4 this morning, Paul is going to give the Colossian church sort of his closing arguments. He's coming to the end of this letter, he's wrapping up these thoughts, and he leaves this church with two admonitions, two final pieces of instruction, if you will. And both of these pieces of instruction that we're going to see in chapter 4 have to do with sharing Jesus with those around us. And so it's as if that having seen the person of Jesus and the promises of Jesus and our position in Jesus and understanding that our life is all about Jesus, let's tell people about this, right? Let's start sharing this. Let's start sharing who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how that changes our lives so that those where we live and work and play can now live in a life that is all about Jesus. From Colossians 4, I want us to see Paul's final admonitions, his final pieces of instruction to 
the Colossian church. But before we do, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on this text. God, we love you so much, and we are thrilled with what you're doing in the lives of the people here in this room and what you're doing in the lives of people all across the world who are worshiping you and pursuing you as their Lord and Savior, God. We are part of a bigger plan. We are part of a bigger mission, and that is your plan to redeem fallen people so that they can have a relationship with you. God, we love you. I pray that you'd enlighten our eyes to these two truths, these two instructions this morning. Give grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 4, if you have it there in front of you, you'll notice that verse 1 of Colossians 4 is actually a continuation of the thought from chapter 3. In fact, if you have an ESV in front of you, it actually labels the paragraph that way. It says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is him wrapping up his thoughts on how the, how the preeminence of Jesus allows us to be rightly related one to another. And so really in chapter 2, is, and I'm sorry, in verse 2 is where we find Paul beginning his closing arguments and his final instruction. Let's read this text together. Verse 2 says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, and walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And in this final paragraph here that Paul is writing to the Colossian church, before he gives his, his, uh, his brotherly greetings to those that he knows and those that know them, he, he, he gives this last piece of instruction. And there's two pieces to it. And first of all, he says, continue in prayer. Continue in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And as Paul encourages the Colossian people to pray, I, I cannot help but be struck with the beautiful symmetry that is taking place where once, if you remember at the beginning of the book, as Paul is addressing this church, it is Paul who is the one doing the praying. He said in Colossians 1.3, we always thank God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you. And so you see Paul, who is really the, the, the patriarch of the church during this time. He's the foremost uh, 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 mover or spreader of the gospel in this time. And he is pouring out prayers over this church that the gospel would go forward, that there would be growth, that there would be fruit, that there would be change that takes place. And now at the end of the book, we see Paul imploring the Colossian people to be the ones who are praying. That this, these new believers, this young church, probably only five to seven years old at the time, would be praying for Paul that the gospel would go forward, that there would be growth, and that there would be doors of opportunity. And there's this beautiful bookend, if you will, of Paul, who is the most senior of saints, the most veteran of Christians, right, praying for the Colossian people. And at the end of the book, you've got the Colossian church who are new and young and, and vibrant, and they are being encouraged to pray. And I'm struck with the fact that prayer is an essential function of the believer. Like more than just putting a, a bookend on, a, on a, a literary device and a letter that Paul is writing, I think what Paul is emphasizing here is this, that prayer is an essential function of the believer. That whether you have been saved for a lifetime or whether you've been saved for a day or moments, to be in Christ is to be in prayer. Because prayer is vital for the believer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And if we're going to 
say that prayer is an essential function of the believer or that to be in Christ is to be in prayer, I think it's appropriate that we enter into a, a brief discussion as to what is prayer? What is prayer? And my desire is not to answer comprehensively or authoritatively. I don't, I don't believe that I have the golden ticket or the answer that is dogmatic. What is prayer? But, but to enter a discussion of, well, what are we talking about here? There was a, um, there was a preschool teacher who asked her students that very question, what is prayer? And a, a, a young preschool boy raised his hand and said, well, prayer is when we ask God for things, right? And, and, and like in, in a moment of childlike faith and, 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 and in a simple answer, we understand prayer to be larger than this, but this young boy held the very essence of what prayer is. He held the key to understanding how prayer works in the life of a believer, and that is this, that prayer is asking God. Prayer is making request to God. It is a yielding of our wills and our desires and our plans and our ambitions to the, to the, to the ultimate will of God the Father and doing so through request. Remember the Lord's Prayer with me if you would. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You, you are holy. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we understand those to be requests. That Jesus is demonstrating to the disciples that we need to be asking, not just for things, but that the very will of God would come to earth. That what God desires to take place and what, has, what is his desires and will would be like that here on earth. That it would be like a little bit of heaven here on earth. Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. It's request. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread, requesting for that which we need. Forgive us our sins. Again, a request of forgiveness. And so speaking rather precisely, not comprehensively this morning, we could say that prayer is this. And I want to show you on the screen behind me. This is from John Piper. He says, prayer is the expression of our dependence on God through request. And to be doing so with thanksgiving. And with confession, these are elements of prayer. Uh, I don't want you to think that this is the, the end-all answer in prayer, but at the heartbeat of the question, what is prayer? Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God through requests. And this is beautiful because when we pray, it puts us in a posture of dependence, utter dependence. We're dependent on God for, for everything in life, our daily needs, for forgiveness, for his will, for his work. And when we pray, we are in a posture of utter dependence. And what's beautiful is that when we pray in a posture of dependence, God now, who is entirely self-sufficient, who is entirely self-sustaining, is in a position of ultimate provision. We are ultimately dependent. God is ultimately providing for us. And the mediator between God and man, the person of Jesus Christ, is in a place of total sufficiency because Christ is all and in all. Our dependence on God, God's provision in our life, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, it's this like beautiful trifecta that when we pray, we're rightly related to God and to the Son. It's beautiful. And this is why it's so important that whether you've been saved a lifetime or whether you've been saved but moments, to be in Christ is to be in prayer. It's essential. Paul reminds the Colossian people, continue steadfastly in prayer. Don't give that up. Don't give that up. Don't let anybody uh, diminish that. Don't let anybody change that as a priority in your life. Continue steadfastly in prayer. But more than this, 
more than this. I think the object of Paul's request is another indication to what Paul is saying here. Let's look back at our text, if you would. In verse 2, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Here, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. A door for the word. This... um. A door for the gospel, you might say. This, this turn of phrase, door for the word, a door for the gospel, it, it's, not, it's not unique to this text here. In fact, it happens in three other passages where this phrase, a door for the word or an opportunity for the gospel, is used. And it's, it is used within uh, the context of Paul and the spread of the gospel at this time. And I want to take a look at those three instances briefly this morning because I think it will help us understand what Paul is actually asking God for or prayer for from the Colossian people. So let's take a a brief look at these three verses here. And again, we're looking for that phrase, door for the word or opportunity for the gospel. In Acts 14, it says this, When they arrived together and gathered the church, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. A a door of faith. You you remember uh, back in our study in Acts just a few months ago, when the gospel was, was busted wide open, no longer just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. You remember Peter was in the upper room and he had this vision and there was this sheet that came down with all kinds of meats and God instructed him to eat. And there was a, a series of events that took place with Peter's vision, with him losing his sight, with him going to Cornelius. There was this alignment of circumstances that allowed for something very specific to take place. And that was that the gospel was busted wide open, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. There was a door for the gospel, an aligning of circumstances that was just so, so that the gospel could go forward. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 16. It says this, Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. So here's Paul, and he's changing his itinerary, right? He's saying, I was going to go, but I'm actually going to stay, and the reason I'm going to stay is because things are just right for the gospel. I mean, there is a perfect alignment of circumstances. He doesn't give us any indication as to exactly what it was, but it was enough to say, you know what, I'm going to stay here because there's an opportunity here. There is a aligning of circumstances that is such that the gospel can go forward. And then in 2 Corinthians 2, it says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the word. And then this phrase comes up again in Colossians where it says, pray for a door for the word. I'm going to take a door for the word to mean this, based on what we've seen. A aligning of circumstances, very real, very physical, very tangible circumstances that is, that, is ju- that is just so, that is perfect for the spread of the gospel, for gospel transmission. That there is conversations, that there is people, there was, there was circumstances that align just right for the sake of the gospel. And Paul is imploring the Colossian people, pray that God would align the circumstances yet again so that the gospel can go forward, so that the gospel can be promoted, can be advanced. Now imagine this. Paul is in prison at the time. Right? We, we saw this back at the beginning. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's standing on trial uh, many times over for things that have been acu- he's been accused of, and he's waiting for his opportunity to speak to Caesar, and he's, he's, in a, he's, he's under arrest. 
He's in house arrest, so he has some freedoms, but not the freedoms he would enjoy, not the freedoms he would like to, not the freedoms that you might even think would be most conducive for the gospel. And Paul could have very well requested for the Colossian people to pray that the circumstances would align so that he would be acquitted of the things accused against him so that he could be free, but that is not his first and foremost priority. Now imagine, Paul, I'm sure, knew of Peter's angelic escort from prison where he was uh, brought out by, by a glowing angel, this miraculous freeing from prison. I'm sure Paul knew that story. In fact, Paul and Barnabas, they were in prison before in Philippi, right? And they experienced this, this, this heavenly earthquake that shook the grounds and the prison doors flung open and, and Paul and Barnabas were able to walk away free. And as they're walking out of these doors, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And he trusts Jesus Christ. You want to talk about doors for the gospel? How about prison doors being flung wide open and on their way out, the prison guard says, what must I do to be saved? See, Paul knew full well that God could change the circumstance of his imprisonment, and yet that was not his primary request. It was for the gospel. It was for the gospel. You see, we believe that God can change circumstances, don't we? You believe that this morning? And, and, and that's manifested in the things that we pray for. We beg for God to come down and to work in the circumstances of our lives around people who are suffering from disease and cancer and surgeries and sickness. We pray that God would give doctors skill and wisdom as they operate, as they diagnose, that they would have cognitive clarity. This is a, an aligning of a very real physical circumstance. We pray that God would do that so that we could see healing in the lives of people that need it, don't we? God can change that circumstance. We pray that God would intervene, that he would give conversations and words and grace in those conversations so that relationships can be restored, so that marriages can come back together, so that brokenness can be healed. We beg that God would align the circumstances and give us the words to say so that those things can happen. We do it with finances, that God would provide in miraculous ways, whether it's ways that we expected income or ways that we didn't, or maybe just the provision of food on a daily basis. We pray that God would change the circumstances of this life. And listen, I'm not berating you for praying for those things. God delights in those things. God is, joy, is, is in joy at providing for his, his people. He says, no good thing will I withhold from them that walk uprightly. God loves when we ask him to change circumstances. However, is there prayer in your life for aligning of circumstances, not for healing, not for provision, not for care, but for the gospel to go forward? Because imagine this. Maybe the very circumstance that you are in that you are begging God to change is the very circumstance that God will use that is, that is best for the spread of the gospel. And we want it gone. And we want it moved. We want it removed. And yet our prayer must always be, God, this is my heart. This is my desire. This is what I would want. But your will be done. Didn't Jesus pray this before he went to the cross? Father, if you could let this cup pass from me, if there was any other way, yet not my will but yours be done. Do you pray for doors for the gospel? The very circumstance that Paul was in, his imprisonment in Rome, is the fulfillment of promises that God has made and desires that Paul had to bring the gospel to Rome. And he had to go to prison to get there. And so instead of praying that God would release him or free him from prison, he prays that God would let the gospel go forward. Do we pray this way? 
Do we pray that as we go to work, there would be conversations, there would be people that come across our path that we can share the gospel with? Do we pray as we go to the gym that so-and-so would be there or that such-and-such a person would be there so that I could just be an encouragement, so that I could somehow have a conversation that might lead the gospel opportunity? Do you pray as you drop your kids off at school that that parent would be there that you could talk to or when you go to the grocery store that you would have these doors of opportunity to share the gospel? Are you praying for doors for the gospel in your life? We're in a season of blessing those where we live and work and play. And over the next few months, we're going to, we're going to uh, we, we've prayed for these individuals. We're going to listen. We're going to eat. We're going to share. We're going to serve individuals where we live and work and, pray, and play. And it needs to start with us praying for those opportunities. God, give me opportunities to share you with the people around me. Do you pray this way? For opportunities. God will do it. He'll do it. He'll bring people, he'll bring circumstances along the way so that you can share Jesus. Paul says in verse 3, we pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. You see, Paul says, I, I want you to pray for doors for opportunity. But beyond just praying for doors for opportunity, you know what you need to do? This is our second admonition, his second and final piece of instruction in this book. He says, take advantage of those opportunities. Don't let them slip by. Take advantage of those opportunities. Verse 5 says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That phrase, making the best of the time. It's actually a, a term that is, that is sort of geared towards like business relationships. And we understand that in a business, there are opportunities, there are moments where you have to capitalize. You got to take advantage of those moments while they're there because they don't always stick around. They won't always be there. So when they're there, make the best use of it. Take advantage of it. Paul is saying, look, pray for doors of opportunity. Pray for an aligning of circumstances so that you can share the gospel and then make the best of it right? Like capitalize on it. Take advantage of that opportunity. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we look at those moments as obligations. And I've heard it said many times from many people and, and very well-intentioned that they were at the store or with a friend or, and God had kind of prompted their heart to share the gospel or to say something and they chose not to and they missed the opportunity. I've heard it preached many times. If God's pricking your heart to share the gospel, no matter how awkward, no matter how hard, no matter how strange, you obey. And I don't want to diminish those because they are the best of intentions. But when we begin to look at our, our, our gospel connections as obligations, it kind of it just diminishes them, doesn't it? Paul doesn't look at those as obligations. He's not here saying to the Colossian people, like, you better do this because it's on your agenda. So now you've got to share the gospel with these people. He says, no, 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 these are opportunities. These are, like, these are like a perfect alignment in a business plan. And when a strategy and a plan comes together, and the moment to act is now, and you do it, and you take advantage of the opportunity, and there's growth and there's benefit from it. When you have a chance to share the gospel, it's an opportunity, not an obligation. And Paul says, take advantage of it. Capitalize on it. You prayed for it, right? Here it is. Step up. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's game time. Let's do it. 
And he gives three ways that we can take advantage of these opportunities. Three ways that we can make the best use of these opportunities. And they look like this. In verse 5 it says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. You want to know how you make, take, take advantage of these opportunities and make the best of them? You, you walk wisely. You, you walk by walking wisely. I wrote here that wisdom is knowing when and where and how to apply knowledge. Wisdom knows the time and the place for correction, for instruction, and for encouragement. Wisdom knows how to act in every circumstance. In our sharing the gospel, we must live wisely. We must speak wisely. We must walk wisely. And where does this, where does this wisdom come from? Like what, what is the source of this wisdom that we so desperately need to take advantage of these opportunities that we've been praying for? I can think of two things, the person of Jesus and the word of Jesus. The person of Jesus and the word of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, we saw this. It says, in whom, speaking of Jesus, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in Jesus. Where does this wisdom come from? It comes from Jesus. In him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom. You want wisdom, and you want Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 16 of Colossians, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So wisdom is found and sourced in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's found and sourced in the word of Jesus Christ. And as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we're taught, we're instructed in wisdom. You want wisdom towards outsiders? You want to live wisely? I don't have a five-step plan or, or a filter or a checkbook or, or, or I mean, a, a checklist. A checkbook, that'd be nice, right? I don't have a, a checklist for you this morning. What I have is I have two things, the person of Jesus and the word of Jesus. And the good news is you have access to both of those. Unrestricted access to the person of, of Jesus and the word of Jesus. You can have as much as you want. I had a camp director who said you can be as close to God as you want to be, Right? So do you want this wisdom? Do you want to take advantage of these opportunities? Do you want to capitalize on them? Then get close to Jesus. Get to know him. Get to understand him. Spend time with him. Spend time with his word. Read it. Invest in it. Memorize it. Know it. And more than just the reciting of facts, more than just the knowledge, but an intimate relationship with the person of Jesus Christ leads to wisdom. So let me ask you this. How close do you are? How close are you to Jesus this morning? Because if we're going to take advantage of these opportunities, we first have to be walking wisely, walking with Jesus, walking in his word. There's a second way we take advantage of these opportunities. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. And then in verse 6, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I'm calling this speaking tastefully. Salty. I love salty snacks. I'll, this, I was not going to share this, but Emily and I have a routine in the evenings where, um, where I, I like to snack, and she knows. In fact, she said this the other, the other day. She brought me, like, I don't know, it was like chips or something. She says, you always do savory before sweet. And I'm like, yeah, like I love saltiness. Speaking tastefully is how we capitalize, how we take advantage of these opportunities. What, what, is, what does this mean? I wrote this. 
Food that has lost its savor is bland, distasteful, and unappealing. You know why I think we're scared of sharing the gospel oftentimes? You know why I think we're afraid sometimes to articulate truths of the gospel to those where we live and work and play? I think it's because we, we don't like how it tastes. It's kind of lost its savor. And so that as we begin to tell people about Jesus and we articulate the truths that we discovered in the book of Colossians in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the person and the promise and the position that we have in Jesus, as we begin to recite those things and the very words come to our mouth, it's just kind of bland, kind of stale. You know, husbands, have you ever come home from work or just sat down for an evening meal and your wife has made a new recipe? It's a casserole. I love casseroles. I don't care what's in it. You put those French onions on top, mm. doesn't matter. And like, so your wife has made this casserole and she puts it on your plate and she slides it over to you and she says, I hope you like it. And it's like at that moment, it's almost like a spotlight, like the house lights go down and a spotlight turns on, right? You just kind of feel the sweat like, and it's not just your wife that's watching, it's your kids that are watching too, right? They're like, what is dad going to do now? And, you know, like, I, in my house at least, the casseroles are usually good. It's not usually like, oh, that's terrible. It's usually somewhere between like, mm, that's, that's fine. It's fine. I like the French onions. And then, and then they're really good. So, so it's not even that there's going to be this like face on. No, it's not going to be that. But you know what happens is this. You take that bite, you put it in your mouth, and, and, and if, it's like, if it's not super good, it might as well be blah, right? Like, like, because no matter how you try to you know, hold that face, and you're so careful with your expressions in your eyebrows. Am I the only one that thinks this way? <laughs> like these are, these are tense moments. Right? And, and it's like, no matter what you say, unless it's like a home run, unless it's like, ah, oh, so good. Like, if it's anywhere in between, your wife knows. <laughs> like, she knows. So it's like, don't, you don't have to play this like, wow, that is really unique, you know? <laughs> Wow. I mean, you know, and it's like, it's like she knows. Because if it's not amazing, if it's not super good, if it's not like incredible, she can see right through it, Right? It's kind of bland, it's kind of tasteless. It's just kind of like, mm. You don't say those things, by the way. <laughs> I've learned, right? I've been married five years and I've learned. You don't say those things. You know what I think happens? And, it's, and it's, a, it, it's a lot less comical when it happens. Is I think sometimes we go to share the gospel with people and we talk about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as the very words come out, it's just kind of like, it's like, a, it's like, a, like an easy bait casserole. You know, you just, it was there, you knew it. And you, you threw it in the microwave and cooked it up so that you could share it with somebody. And it's just kind of like, mm, it's bland, it's tasteless, it's flavorless. How does the gospel taste to you this morning? You know, sometimes we lose our appetite for things because we just don't eat it enough. Like we, we lose our ability to, to differentiate between the subtle tastes of, 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 of these things because we don't make a continual diet of it. I wonder, I wonder if some of you this morning need to go back and make a diet of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you need to go back 
to Colossians chapter 1 and 2 and read the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and taste it afresh, taste it anew, let it linger on your tongue so that you can tell the different tastes and the different flavors and the goodness and the richness of the gospel in your life. Has the gospel lost its flavor to you? You remember how good it was and how rich it was and how tasteful it was. And if we're going to capitalize, if we're going to take advantage of the opportunities to share the gospel, we have to speak tastefully. The gospel must be fresh in our minds. It must be fresh on our palates. It must be so good that we cannot help but share it with the people where we live and work and play. And it's like, even if we say the wrong words, even if we don't articulate it correctly, people know because it just is that good. We have to speak tastefully to remember the goodness of the gospel. There's a third admonition here to taking advantage of our opportunities, and that is this. We must be prepared thoroughly. You can take advantage of your opportunities to share the gospel by preparing thoroughly. Paul says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How, How prepared are you to share the gospel? You know, I, was, I was thinking about this. My dad is in the, uh, in the world of uh, like investments and annuity sales and kind of retirement planning and that sort of thing. And, and monthly, sometimes multiple times a month, they have these seminars where they invite prospective clients in and they share what the company can provide for them and what the, you know, I don't know what it is. It all goes over my head. But, but I know for a fact that when my dad goes into these seminars, right, he's addressing individuals. He's going to try to uh, address potential problems or potential questions in their mind, he prepares like crazy. I mean, he studies, he's got a game plan, he's got notes, right, and he's got his thoughts organized so that when he goes in there, he can very effectively prepare or share these plans with people. And then beyond that, those that come to these things often will set up personal uh, meetings, so it's more of an informal you know, setting like this where you're sharing about the company and that sort of thing. And then that leads to you know, individual bookings so that they, they can write business. And when he goes into an individual booking, he doesn't go in unprepared. He knows the, the client's portfolio and, and some of the questions. And, and there's, a, there's a questionnaire type uh, diagnostic that's filled out. And my point is this. My point is that when he goes into both group settings and to individual settings, he's prepared. He's got a game plan. Hey, do you have a game plan for the gospel? I, I think you should have two game plans. Like one would be a very generic opportunity so that if you get a chance to share the gospel, if you get a door of opportunity to be able to address maybe a group in your home or a group at work and there's several people sitting there or maybe it's just spontaneous and you don't really know this person, you're just sharing the gospel with them, I think you should have a plan A. And that plan A could look like this, sharing your testimony, how you came to know Jesus Christ. And like, Nobody's offended by this. Like, you're not, you're not telling anybody like, hey, I, uh, I think you need to change and you need to, you need to, you need to. And sometimes, let's face it, the gospel can often f- sound that way to the unbeliever, right? It can be like, oh, you're just attacking me. I feel accosted. Well, maybe plan A in a generic situation is just, hey, let me share with you what God has done in my life. And you go into something that you've studied that you know well. I mean, it's you, right? And you just share what God's done and use that as a door for the word. Have a, have a generic plan. 
But then I'd say this, have a specific plan. And this is what's really exciting because we're in a season of blessing those where we live and work and play. And this month we've begun with prayer and we've prayed for specific individuals. I hope you've prayed for specific individuals, neighbors, coworkers, family members, whatever. Here's, here's plan two. I want you to think this way as we continue in this series. Think about that individual and you know their circumstance, you know their scenario. And think about how you can bring the gospel truths, the person and the work of Jesus Christ to bear on their circumstance. And come up with a plan. Have a, have a strategy, you know? Like, like know where the verses are in your Bible so that you can find them quickly. Or maybe write them on a card or, or, or take pictures in your phone or whatever you need to do. Have a plan. Be prepared to share the gospel. And if you need help this morning and you're like, I have an opportunity to share the gospel. I've never done it before. I don't know how that works. I don't know what that looks like. Come talk to one of us. Myself, Pastor Luke, Pastor Ken, any, any, any of those here that, that, that know Christ and have been in Christ for a while. Talk to someone. Say, hey, I'd love to have a game plan. We, we love, love to equip you. Maybe it's with a booklet. There's these little ready-made booklets that you can just read through. They're gospel tracts, maybe, is what you've heard them referred to. We can get you some of those. We can get you prepared to share the gospel. But know this, you won't be able to take advantage of your doors for the word. You won't be able to take advantage without being prepared. It's going to take some work. And it starts right here. You got to know, you got to know this word. You don't have to know the whole thing, but you got to know, you got to know Jesus. And you got to know what he's done for you. You got to know who he is. And maybe this morning you're like, hey, I just want to know more about Jesus. That would be an awesome place to start. Like, let's set up a time, whether it's with me or one of the other pastors or leaders, to just start learning about Jesus. And we can meet on a Starbucks or, or wherever, and we can just learn about Jesus. The, the bottom line is this. We have to be prepared. We, we have to walk wisely. We have to know Jesus. We have to know his word. We have to speak tastefully. The gospel has to be so real and so fresh and so good to us. And we have to be prepared in order to take advantage of our opportunity to share the gospel. Would you pray that way with me? Would, as we go into a season where we're going to look to listen, right? That's our next BLESS initiative, to the people where we live and work and play. And then we're going to eat and serve and share with them by the end of the year. Would you pray for an aligning of circumstances that is just right for the sake of the gospel? And then would you walk wisely, speak tastefully, be prepared, to be able to capitalize on that opportunity. Jesus is preeminent. He is overall. He is in all. And what he has done has created ultimate realities that will never be diminished, that will never change. Our sin has been paid for. Our enemy has been defeated. And because of those realities, we're in a position of being dead to the world and alive to Jesus Christ, which influences everything that we do Everything that we do is about Jesus Christ. And we can share that with the people around us.